This is episode number 180, How to Get Sponsored with Molly Herford. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Remember that when you're thinking about sponsorship, you're thinking about a job hunt. You're actually trying to become an employee. It's really easy to get on a high horse after you've won a couple of races and think like, oh, I wanna be a professional athlete, I wanna be this big deal. But the top professional athletes are also the top employees of the company. I don't know if it's me, but man, it feels like February is flying by and I'm really glad because I'm ready to have this baby. Speaking of babies and pregnancy, I've been writing some blog posts about my experience, very candid blog posts. So if you go to sonyalooney.com slash blog, there's a drop down menu and you can pick pregnancy and parenthood if you want to check those out. I've also shared some of those in my free weekly newsletter that you can sign up for at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. I send out a free newsletter every Friday that has the podcast episodes that came out for the week, any new articles or tips or blog posts I came across, and even some giveaways, which I'm going to be focusing on a little bit later in the year. So join thousands of people, get on the newsletter list, and I hope to see you there. And again, that's sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. And one last little plug before we get into it, there is a bunch of stuff on sale at moxieandgrit.com and we're trying to clear out a bunch of old sock designs to make way for a bunch of the new ones that we've spent a lot of time working on and I'm really excited to reveal those new designs for spring. So today's podcast topic, sponsorship, is something near and dear to my heart. It's something I've personally spent a lot of time working on as a self-managed athlete for the last six years and writing my own proposals, creating my own value propositions. A big question that people ask me is about how to get sponsored. So when my friend Molly Herford, also the author of Shred Girls, who's been on this podcast, told me that she wrote this book, I was pretty excited to have her on the show so that we could unpack what it takes to get sponsored. Her book is called The Athlete's Guide to Sponsorship, and you can go to athletesponsorshipguide.com to pick it up. It's all about the business of fitness. The book is jam-packed full of really useful information, including best practices, how to even approach a sponsor and write a good email, the power of follow-ups, how to write a proposal. There are a lot of different things that go into getting sponsored. We talked about Molly's experience as team manager for the former team, Aspire Racing, best practices of some of the pros that Molly has worked with how to do your own photo shooting and photo shooting such a big part of being a sponsored athlete these days. A lot of people have thought that I have my own photographer. (laughs) And most of the time, the photos that you see on Instagram are just a tripod I set up with my iPhone and photos that I edited on my own. So we talk about DIY photo shoots, social media practices, how to get started, how to budget. The budget part is particularly tricky at times how to ask for money, what to include in your proposals, and even how to build relationships with media and journalists so that there can be more coverage about you. Another thing I want to add here is that back in the day, I think I'm trying to think back to when this was probably like 2009, 2010. That's when I first started endurance racing. And I wasn't in the media, people weren't writing about me, people weren't covering me, the magazines just weren't interested, because I don't know why they just weren't. 
And I was frustrated by that because I really wanted to be able to bring value to not only sponsors, but just get my story, get my my stuff out there to help people because I do think that the insight that I have to offer is valuable. So I decided to write my own articles and I started pitching to magazines, feature articles or how-to service type articles so that I could still be in these publications. So if you find that nobody is writing about you, but you still really feel like you have something to contribute, you can still pitch your own articles to media. And a lot of times they're looking for new content, they're looking for new voices. So that's just a little piece of advice that I wanna add. And it's been a really awesome thing. Now I've been a freelance writer for that long and I've written all over, both in and out of the bike industry. And I just really enjoy writing. So if that's something you enjoy and you're feeling like you wanna be in the media a little bit more, that's something that you can do. Molly has built her career with several aims in mind to write constantly, which she totally does. She's written so many books, race often, travel frequently, and she's currently in Girona, so she's following that, and live on her own terms, mostly outside. While she runs her own brands, including the Outdoor Edit, the Consummate Athlete Podcast, which you guys should definitely listen to, and Shred Girls, she also works as a freelance writer for many outdoor publications. And she's also the author of multiple books on cycling and nutrition. Her most recent project, Shred Girls, is a young adult fiction series focused on getting girls excited about bikes. And it's also a website that features interviews, advice, and inspiration for young female cyclists at shred-girls.com. And as I mentioned, she was a guest on this podcast last year where we went in-depth into Shred Girls. And if you want to listen to that episode, it's linked up in the show notes. But today's episode's about sponsorship. You guys are probably dying to hear what we had to say. So here is today's episode with Molly Herford. So we're going to chat about athlete sponsorship today. Yeah, very exciting and very relevant topic heading into the 2020 season. Exactly. That's a question that people, I'm sure you get all the time over at Consummate Athlete and the Outdoor Edit. And people always ask me too, like, hey, I want to get sponsored. Like, where do I start? And, and what are best practices? <laughs> I mean, the main answer is like, yeah, me too. So does <laughs> everyone. <laughs> Yeah. And you recently put out a book, the Athlete Sponsorship Guide, and people can go to athletesponsorshipguide.com to check that out. But I loved it. You sent it to me before it actually went live for real. And it was it's awesome. The, the draft I saw was 122 pages. So for people listening, this is like the ultimate guide to sponsorship if you're trying to learn everything. And Molly and I are going to share as much as we can to get you guys set up. Yeah, it's it's been kind of a, a long book in the making. I think I started the draft of it like six years ago. And as I've grown and learned all of these different things from kind of every angle of the sport, you know, you and I come at it from different ways. You're more on the sponsored athlete side. I've been that in a very, very minor capacity, but my, you know, the view of it that I had is more as a coach, as a team manager, as a journalist, as someone who kind of got to talk to a lot of people who are very high up in the companies that are sponsoring these athletes. So it's been really cool kind of bringing all of their opinions together and seeing what's worked and what absolutely hasn't. Yeah, we're going to give a quick plug to your other book, Shred Girls. And you've been on the podcast talking about Shred Girls. Do you want to give a, a quick blurb about that before we get into this? 
Yeah, absolutely. I would love to because the the second Shred Girls is actually about to come out for pre-order in the next uh, month or so. It's coming out in July. So Shred Girls is my middle grade fiction series. That's uh, what I keep calling a babysitter's club, but with bikes instead of babysitting. So it's a lot more interesting in my in my humble opinion. But it follows, yeah, the adventures of three girls who come from all different cycling backgrounds and find bikes and find each other and learn a lot about friendship and solve some mysteries along the way. And when does the pre-order for that actually start? That, I unfortunately wish I had a date on it, but you know how it is with publishers. They they told me it's going to be pretty soon, so sometime in the early new year. Okay, cool. So when this comes out, it should be ready for people. All right, so let's talk about first your experience as a team manager for Aspire Racing, because I think the team is no longer, but there, I mean, Ellen Noble and Jeremy Powers are on that team, and I'm sure that you you know, we're behind the scenes to some pretty big contracts and some interesting discussions. So can you talk about that to start? Yeah, working with that team was, you know, one of the most interesting things I've seen because in U.S. cyclocross, I mean, other than Canada cyclocross world, there aren't any other big teams like Aspire was, you know, for a long time, it was Rafa and Focus were the title sponsors. There were a lot of other smaller companies that really supported it. You know, Noon Hydration, Nobby Martins, I'm missing a bunch of them, but you know, they had the biggest setup in the US and they did everything so professionally. So it was a really good chance for me to get to see this is what a professional team looks like. And, you know, it kind of all goes together, right? You don't get sponsored if you're not putting out this incredibly professional vibe and, you know, doing things like professionals. So, you know, Jeremy Powers is perhaps the most honestly professional cyclocrosser that I can I can name he did everything right and really brought the sport to a ton of people. He provided value to his sponsors that went well beyond racing. And, you know, I feel like if you're, if you're looking for a model of someone to look up to and want to emulate, his career is a perfect one. Yeah. So can you talk about all those things that you saw that were on another level that made them so professional as a starting point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I'll say after races, you know, the first thing we would do is we had a bag that was at the finish line that had a towel that was wet and, you know, could wipe off the mud off of their face and frankly, out of their teeth. And, you know, the the cap that had all of the sponsors logos on it. And, you know, the first thing that you would see Jeremy do when he rolled across the finish line was take off his helmet, put on the cap that had all of the sponsors on it. So that way, when press came up to him, he was instantly showcasing all of his sponsors. He was ready with that. You know, he also had the protein shake that was, of course, in the proper, you know, bottle with the correct sponsor on it. So he's holding that in the videos. So, you know, even from the second he crossed the finish line, he was already, you know, ready to be this perfect sponsored athlete. And, you know, he was great with speaking to reporters. He always kind of had that really ideal, succinct, I'm going to give you this 45 second interview that has all of the information that you need, you know, not going to ramble for 10 minutes about my race, but also not going to, you know, just give one word answers. He kind of had that really dialed in. He always had the rider cards with the up-to-date pictures and the appropriate sponsor logos, and they were ready to be signed. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that it's not necessarily because he had this big budget race team. Those you know, we printed for 20 bucks at Staples and, you know, using Vistaprint. So it's not like people can't do that if they don't have this big budget team thing. Like I designed a lot of those cards. They, you know, it doesn't take that much to have that level of professionalism and have that finish line bag with the clean towel and, you know, just be ready to talk to people and be 
turned on after the race and be, you know, happy to see everybody and sign fan cards and stuff like that. And what about like off the bike? Because I think a lot of people listening probably aren't going to be at the level, like they're not going to be winning races. Like press probably isn't going to want to talk to them and no offense, you guys, if they are, (laughs) Um, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to tailor this to like kind of the average person who, you know, maybe they're a pro, maybe they're not. Maybe they're an aspiring amateur, but they, yeah, they may may not have any media or anyone wanting their autograph. There's a lot of other things off the bike and we will get into the book stuff you outlined in the book, but I'm just curious about like what Jeremy would do or what you guys would do together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, off the bike, obviously he has a, you know, fantastic social media presence, but what really impresses me about Jeremy is before Instagram was a thing, before any of that was a thing he started the behind the barriers video series with a flip cam and I remember was those. just <laughs> yeah doing these videos by himself and just putting them up and you know this is not when he was winning every single race this was when he was still like a pretty you know just starting out racer he was putting out that message and providing that kind of content so i think you know the one thing that you can take away is even if you're not winning races how can you provide value to sponsors and he did that with a $120 flip cam. And eventually Behind the Barriers was a you know six-figure production that had three cameramen at races and stuff. But it started with Jeremy running around and interviewing guys with this tiny little camera and uploading it and you know having one guy help him out with it. And that was that was it. Yeah, I think something that's been really interesting, like I've been racing for 16 years, and whenever I first started racing, the pros I look up to had, it was a different world back then in terms of like the internet, like there were no smartphones, like I don't even know. Yeah, there was texting, barely, like (laughs) it'd be interesting to look back and see what technology was like. So back then it appeared, and of course I didn't know at the time because I was not a pro, but it appeared to me that what sponsorship was was that people would go fast and then they would like win races and then they'd be a part of this cool team at events and there'd be activations, meaning like things that people could come to at an event. And that was pretty much it in terms of what was expected. Maybe it was expected that you would get interviewed for print magazines, things like that. But the uh, responsibility for not just professional athletes, but just for any athlete or ambassador or influencer, and we'll get into the difference between all those pretty soon. But just the responsibilities have changed quite a bit. So you mentioned that like Jeremy started his video series and he did it on his own. And it's important to if you have an idea, even if you're like a lot of people have imposter syndrome and they're like, well, I'm not like somebody that knows everything about mountain biking or I don't I'm not a coach, but that's no reason not to get started. Yeah, exactly. I mean, oh my gosh, if you dig deep enough into the internet, you can find my old athlete blog and it is not pretty, but it is, <laughs> you know, it's the thing that got me started in writing and it, you know, helped me figure out my voice and helped me get that experience so that I did eventually get to start writing for places because frankly, I was never going to be a professional cyclist, but I could be a really good writer about cycling. So that's how I got to get to all of my stuff. So I guess that's maybe my other sneaky thing is like, there are other backdoor ways into sponsorship. And for me, you know, the way to get to races and to do all of the stuff that I've gotten to do was to be able to write about it and provide that, you know, storytelling aspect. Maybe I'm not pedaling my bike at 400 watts, but I can write a really good story about how the race went. So it's figuring out kind of all of the different angles and all of the different values you can bring sponsors, because at this point, you know, racing your bike really quick is great or running really quick is great. But those logos on the jersey don't mean much when they're blazing by at 25 miles an hour and there aren't that many people at the race to begin with. 
Yeah, I think a good exercise for someone listening that they're like, well, I want to approach sponsors is think about what you just said. You said your uniqueness was you found your voice in writing and you enjoyed writing and identified with that. So like, let's talk about some different buckets that people can look at or, or look at filling that can help them find their voice or help them figure out where their uniqueness is and exploit that. I think the first thing we should talk about, which we just mentioned, was like influencer versus an ambassador program versus a professional athlete. And there's blurred lines in there, but you have a section of your book where you actually defined it really well. And I think that there's a lot of confusion about that. And even for pro athletes, like things I've heard, like when I've been in negotiations is they're like, well, you don't do World Cup races. You're not like an elite World Cup pro, but that doesn't mean that I'm not a professional cyclist. So like there's even blurred lines within what it means to be like a quote professional mountain biker or a cyclist or runner or whatever you may be. Yeah, exactly. And it's really interesting what different brands are are looking for these days. And I think it's really frustrating to be an athlete at this point because you are seeing influencer and I'm using this in like quotation marks here. You're seeing influencer types getting bigger contracts, not necessarily because they can run or ride faster, but because they're bringing a different kind of value. They have these larger social media followings and they can do, you know, these different kind of like solo activations almost that you as a racer who maybe doesn't have a huge following can't necessarily do, even if you can pedal your bike really quick. So it can definitely be really frustrating to be trying to be in that athlete bucket, especially when the budget that you're going to need to race those World Cup races is much higher than an influencer is going to need to do some videos at home. There's nothing inherently right or wrong about either side, but figuring out sort of which one you can bring the most value to, I think is kind of a a big part of that. And it's not like an influencer doesn't mean that you have 200,000 followers anymore. There's also these quote unquote nano influencers, which, you know, you can actually be a paid influencer with under 5,000 or under a thousand followers, which is something that's really new and, you know, changing like honestly, day to day at this point, there was stuff that I started writing in the book a few years ago, and it's completely out the window now because, you know, so much has changed within how we look at these influencers and follower accounts. And, you know, now they're taking away likes from Instagram. So suddenly that doesn't even necessarily have the same relevance that it used to. So yeah, I mean, I think figuring out where you fit into that, are you trying to go for these more ambassador type things? And if you are, then what can you offer that isn't going fast on your bike what can you do in your community like not just what you can do on your social media but like what can you do with group rides and local clubs and this children's ride or this women's ride or you know this beginner's ride and that kind of thing what can you bring to the table that isn't results oriented yeah and from the athlete side of things like you're also expected to have quote like influencer status online and in your book you defined an influencer of someone whose influence only exists because of online presence. So like Mm -hmm. ambassador would probably be like, yeah, they're doing stuff locally in the community where they're not, they're acting locally. And in your book, you have act locally, think globally. And then you have like the athletes, they're like racing and there's a credibility for sure for people who are racing because they're pushing equipment or like nutrition products or whatever to a new level, a new limit. So there's a credibility, I think, with being and following and be as a pro athlete, as opposed to someone who is a quote influencer, we need everybody. We need everybody doing, I mean, we need influencers. We need ambassadors. We need athletes. 
Yeah, but it can be really challenging because a comment that I hear a lot from my friends and my peers as professional racers is like, well, I'm supposed to race and be really fast, but I'm also supposed to spend all this time like doing social media and doing social media, which I think we should talk about what that means. It's not like most professionals do not even get just professional photos to post. Like a lot of us oh, yeah. have to like make our own, like create our own photos and, and, and professionals aside, anybody who's like posting online, you got to create your own content. Yeah, actually, one of the most interesting things I heard is I was um, interviewing Magalie Rochette, and she's the two-time Pan American champion. She finished fourth at World Championships in cyclocross, and she was telling me the first thing she does when she finishes a race after like all the interviews and stuff are done, she gets in the car, and she immediately goes to a couple of the photographers that now just automatically email her photos because she pays them for them. Mm-hmm. She doesn't expect free photos. She pays for these photos from these photographers she writes up her like mini race report with like a couple of usable quotes. And then she emails it to her like newsletter, which is just kind of all of her media contacts. That way they all have these quotes from her. They have these photos of her and she's made it really easy to get her photos into stuff and have these media outlets love her because frankly, it's really hard to collect all of that stuff after races as someone who's been trying to post race reports, you know, within 20 minutes of a race finishing, it's, awesome when a racer takes that kind of initiative and you use that information and you use those photos and for a racer at that level to be doing that after every race I was like oh that's what it takes that's the kind of effort you have to put in you can't just assume that someone's going to come up to you after a race and interview you or make sure they email you to get a quote even if you did win the race yeah and (laughs) paying for photos too huge oh my gosh and it can be like super expensive because if you just want to say to a photographer hey i want to pay you for photos so i can use them on my social media they're usually pretty receptive to that but if you start sharing them where brands are going to use them commercially and their press releases are on their website then that's a whole other level and rung of what it costs to buy those photos so there's a pretty large investment coming from whoever is buying those photos Yeah, actually, embarrassing story on my end. My wedding photographer, actually, I ended up having this awkward thing with her because we had a photo of my now husband and I where he's doing a wheelie or a nose wheelie and we're kissing and Trek ended up retweeting it. And then the photographer got really like annoyed with me and I'm trying to explain, she was a very young, new photographer and actually it ended up getting her a lot of jobs. So we kind of came to terms with it, but it was a really awkward moment where I was just like, wait, am I the bad guy here? Who's the bad guy? And it's a hard thing because it's your photo, you've paid for it, but you do need to make sure that you have the rights to use it, however, and acknowledge that a brand might end up using it and you need to be prepared for that. Yeah, I think being a photographer these days, a professional photographer would be really hard because people just reshare stuff online and you you can't really tell people like, don't reshare my photo if I post it. Yeah, exactly. That was a really blurred line because, yeah, it was like I was I can't help that they retweeted it. Like, I'm not going to complain that they did that. (laughs) But I also see her point. So, yeah, I do not envy photographers who are working solely on people buying their photos it's a tough world and that's actually what Maggie even said is you know she could get photographers to send her photos for free and plenty do but she actually likes kind of paying it forward and paying for the photos because those photographers have to be at the race and they're often not making a lot of money either and the sport really only works if we're all kind of in it together but I also understand that a lot of people don't have the cash to 
just shell out for a ton of photos after every race. So that's where like you do an amazing job of taking, you know, doing your own at home photo shoots. And I think that's actually maybe the biggest section of my book is this idea of how to host your own DIY photo shoot and make that happen. Because a lot of people somehow don't nail that, to be honest. Yeah, like, people actually think that I like not everybody thinks this, but a lot of people do think that I have a professional photographer with me a lot of the time. And I don't, I want to talk about DIY photo shoot. And I'll just tell people what I do because people ask, but I have one of those Joby bendable tripods and I take my phone because a lot of times I'm by myself. I don't have anyone to take a photo for me. And it's like kind of embarrassing, but this is just how I do it. I'll either put it on a timer or I'll shoot a video, whether it be slow motion, so you have a slower frame rate or regular. When it's cloudy or in the forest, it could be blurry and make things more difficult. But I'll do that and then I'll ride by the camera like multiple times and then I'll screenshot the photo and then I'll use Snapseed to edit the photo. And the challenge with this is it's not a high res photo that you can provide to a brand But this gives you social media content and it gives your sponsors social media content. When people have asked me about that, they say, well, how do you train? Because you have to stop and take photos. And from a a time perspective, you can choose to take a few different shots in one day or you can say, "Okay, well, for I have to allocate 20, 30 minutes on my ride where I'm going to be doing my own photos. And then you want to provide those photos in a Dropbox to your sponsors so they have access. And that takes time. And that's something that I need to get better at. Because we can't just assume that sponsors are going to be watching every single thing you do online and are going to have the time and the bandwidth to even do that. Yeah, exactly. I generally assume that sponsors and media want to be as lazy as humanly possible. So the more you want to get in, like, yeah, sponsors, social media, the more you want to be mentioned in any journalism, any of that stuff, you have to provide the content. So yeah, that Dropbox thing, that's so key and making photos that are super shareable, like making sure, you know, every brand that is sponsoring you. And this, this is even if it's just like a, you know, really small sponsor, because like the little things can turn into bigger things. Like, it's not like Jeremy started with Rafa and Focus just throwing things at him, right? Like this, this happened from like one tiny sponsor and worked its way up you know, making sure that if you're riding a Trek bike, that you're not wearing a specialized helmet in it, because Trek can't use that picture of you in a specialized helmet. You know, just kind of trying to make sure that you think through, okay, how could I get a brand to retweet this? Am I wearing all of the one brand's clothes? Or am I wearing Velocio jersey with Rafa shorts? Because both brands aren't going to share it because their competitors are in it. So just kind of trying to think through like, what would a sponsor want to share? And you can even do this before you're sponsored by the brand. I mean, I think most of the brands I've ended up working with have been ones that I've paid for the stuff myself, shared it because I loved it. And, you know, that started the more genuine relationship. Yeah, that's good advice. And that is such a fact. Like I've heard so many times brands say, well, if you haven't used our product before, you know, what or why specifically, if you haven't used our product, why is it that you want this? Yes, exactly. That's one of the chapters I have in the book is like test before you ask, test before you buy. It's not even that hard to go to bike demo days at a bike shop and test out different brands' bikes. And how much more seriously is a brand going to take you when you can be saying, oh, yeah, I love this year's model because I saw that you changed this and this and I think it feels like this on a ride versus me just sending this generic form letter that's like, you should sponsor me because I'm fast. 
Um, you know, a brand wants to know that you actually care about the product. Uh, one of the sponsorship managers said he just wants to know that people at least kind of give a crap about the product because so often people are just asking for stuff, not because they like that particular brand, but because they want to get sponsored. So you kind of have to look beyond this idea of like getting sponsored to working with brands that you genuinely love. Yeah. Before we move on away from the photo shoot, the DIY photo shoot, can you give some more yes. pointers for people? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, the first thing is to honestly like find a friend who's in a similar boat or I've bothered my dad into this. I've bothered friends into this because it is, it's a lot more helpful if you can actually have someone do it. I, totally. the video <laughs> one is one that I a hundred percent use. If you can find a friend who also needs some photos, and a lot of the time, most of us have like one friend who's like, yeah, I could also use some photos of me running or riding. You know, you guys can set up a whole day together and, you know, actually have fun and, you know, enjoy doing it. A huge fan of the magic hour. If you want to get good photos and you're not very good at photography, it's right before sunset, that like hour of around like 4 to 5 p.m., the sun is not as bright as it's going to be. So it's not going to wash everything out. You're going to get the best lighting for the least amount of work. Um, the shadows are going to be kind of at their best spot. So it's going to be the easiest time to take good photos. And I'm a huge fan of when you're going to do one of these photo shoots, just bring a bunch of clothes and do a bunch of costume changes, use a lot of different gear, get a lot done in one day that you can then have for like months and months to share. Like I do this maybe three or four times a year and that's about it. Because frankly, photo shoots are really awkward and uncomfortable for everyone involved. So if you can just have to do a few of them a year, it's much easier. Although I think honestly, the the awkward thing is one of the big things that I always point out is like, yeah, it feels really weird to get your photo taken. It feels really silly to pose and to ride slowly past the camera and to do all of that. But it's just part of the business at this point. Like if you want to be a sponsored athlete, if you want to be a professional athlete, you're going to have to get used to being in these photo shoots. So you're probably better off doing one with your friend or your parent or your husband or wife or whoever than before, hopefully, when you have all these professional photographers that want to take your picture. Yeah, it's actually way less embarrassing, too, whenever you have someone taking your photo versus the tripod. Like, I'm always so mortified when someone sees me. I'm like, oh, I don't <laughs> but it's part of the game. Yep. It's, it's part of what you need to do. Exactly. Yep. So, okay, so oh, we, I will oh, say the one other thing, though, is if you are having a friend take your pictures, for the love of God, check before you like leave the location and call it a day. Just like look through a few of them and make sure they're okay. Because I've had a lot of times with my <laughs> very lovable, wonderful husband where I've had to give him the camera back and be like, we've deleted all of these. We're going to do this again because he's somehow managed to like have it on the wrong lens or focus and I'm blurry in all of them or I'm somehow cross-eyed in all of them. I don't know how he does it. He manages <laughs> to get like the world's worst angle of me. So just don't be afraid to like check the film and, you know, ask for a redo, maybe offer some suggestions of a better angle if you're going to do that. But yeah, don't be afraid to take more pictures. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Okay, so I think that a good place to go now would be to have a basic blueprint for somebody. We talked about some tips from pro racers that that they've that you saw people have been doing. We talked about like using other people's photos and we talked about DIY photo shoots and what you can do to create your own social media content. But let's start from the beginning, which is probably where we should have started to begin with, but if someone is 
amateur racer, let's assume that most of the audience are amateur racers or just interested in becoming influencers. Where is the starting point and what should they start doing? Yeah, the first thing you should start doing is keep doing what you're doing and keep racing and collecting these results and, you know, putting your your best foot forward on social media and at races. Basically act like a professional before you're a professional. But then the other thing that I think people really kind of skip is the figuring out what it is that you need and what it is that you want. So figuring out, you know, to get through a season. So say you want to be a sponsored cyclist. What does a season actually look like? What race calendar do you want to do? So then what's the cost of all the races? Which ones are you going to have to travel to? What's like a rough cost for travel? You know, it's not just about getting a bike, obviously. Uh, As you know, a race season costs a lot more than just a new set of wheels and a new frame. And sometimes you can get everything but the bike. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So, yeah, figuring out what exactly you need to get through a season is a really good starting point. And then thinking about what it is that you actually want. Like, who are the brands that you love? Who are the brands that you want to work with? You know, you might not necessarily get all of them right away, but it's good to kind of have this like, these are my dream brands. This is what I love. And of course, then there's all the kind of back doors into getting them, right? So say you love, I always use Trek bikes because that's who my husband Peter races for. You love Trek bikes, but obviously Trek factory racing, probably not calling you anytime soon if you're an amateur racer who's a year into the sport. However, do you have a local bike shop that sells Trek or whatever bike brand that you happen to love? You know, could you figure out a deal with them where you're providing some kind of value, whether it's, you know, you're going to host a couple of beginner shop rides that that month or, you know, maybe you're going to do a talk one night about the kind of racing that you do or something like that. So figuring out what it is that you can provide to that smaller scale shop. And I mean, Just because the bike shop is, you know, this one local bike shop, they still have a sales rep who works for the company who could eventually be talking to the sponsorship coordinator for the bigger company. So I think people really dismiss these smaller local level sponsorships as like not as cool as, you know, getting the big brand, but they're 100% the easier way to start thinking about getting to that big brand in a few years. Yeah. And I think in your book, you had an example of, yeah, thinking bigger picture. So getting a sponsorship through your local bike shop versus getting sponsored by a sunglass company was the example and the total value that you get. And going back to the coolness of saying, well, I'm sponsored by, you know, Oakley or or whatever, or Mm -hmm. saying I'm sponsored by whatever bike shop. It's not necessarily about the popularity contest and image of saying, oh, I'm sponsored. It's it's about value. And it's not only about value that you're getting. It's actually first about the value that you're bringing to a company. Number one, like you look at yourself as you oh, are. Yes. You are an arm of their mar- You're part of their marketing team. And you, you might be a professional athlete. You might be an amateur athlete. You might be an influencer, but you are literally part of their marketing team. So what can you do to bring value to that brand? Oh, exactly. The first thing I say in the book is just remember that when you're thinking about sponsorship, you're thinking about a job hunt. You're actually trying to become an employee. Like, it's really easy to kind of get on a high horse after you've won a couple of races and, you know, think like, oh, I want to be a professional athlete. I want to be this big deal. But the top professional athletes are also the top employees of the company. The ones that have the best careers are the ones that are the best 
doing the best job as employees of the company. Like they'd be getting employee of the month, not just because they got a you know gold medal at the thing, but because they also provided all of this other value to the company. So I think that's such an important thing is to remember that you're not the top dog in this case. And it's a rough pill to swallow, especially when you are an established, you know, you've been kind of established in the sport, but yeah, I mean, you're always going to be going in for that annual review. You're always going to be trying to justify your salary. You're always going to be an employee of that company. Yeah. And also just a note for people listening and I'll, I'll be honest and, and say this, it's, you might have been working with brands as a top athlete, like I have for many, many years, getting paid money, you know, with good brand rapport. But things happen like it's based on personal relationships with the people in the brands. It's based on the brand's budget. And as you say in your book, you are a line like you are a line item, even if the people like you. And so just mm-hmm. because you may, you quote make it and you're getting paid money and you're doing well, that's no guarantee that you're going to keep it. And it's a very volatile space to be in. So it's not going to be like this thing where you think I'll be happy when I become a paid professional athlete and I'll have the world at my fingertips and I'll ha- I'll make money and it'll be easy. Like it's never going to be easy. It'll get easier, I guess, but the stakes get higher whenever your income is based on these things too. In your book, yeah. you give some examples of like different ways that sponsorships look. So can we break down like, you know, product sponsorship, a little bit of money and like people having to work part time and then ways to save money and invest money in themselves as athletes? Because I think that that is something that isn't talked about. Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, being an athlete is very, very expensive. Like, Let's just put that out there to do it well, to be eating well, to be recovering well, to be, I mean, living well. Like, I've known a lot of athletes who were, you know, living with like 10 guys in a house and, you know, they're getting sick every other week and their results are, you know, hurting as a result because they're just not willing to invest in their career because they're so busy trying to money. And, you know, honestly, probably a 20 hour a week part time job would have helped them actually do better because they would have been able to afford better food and probably their own room in a house. (laughs) I feel like that was a little rambly there. But anyway, there are a few different types of sponsorships you can go after. The easiest is probably the product sponsorship, which is where, you know, you're just getting product from a company. I remember someone telling me a few years ago, it's so easy to get stuff from companies it's really hard to get money from companies especially in you know cycling and running so that's sort of the the first type of sponsorship and i mean it's it's still not that easy like let's be honest it's not like anyone's just handing bikes out left and right or anything like that and there's still massive value in that and that's a good entry-level place to start building a relationship with the brand because yeah like to ask like i want to talk about like when should you start asking for money but yeah keep going (laughs) Yeah. So the other one is, you know, a little bit of money and that's probably more towards like paying your race entry fees or paying a little bit of travel or maybe even honestly giving you like air miles so you can book travel on, on their cards because a lot of companies will have, you know, a lot of miles kind of just sitting around or, you know, you might even be able to find a local, you know, single person or small business that wants to sponsor you. And that's an easy way that they can sponsor you. So I think the other thing that's kind of an aside is thinking laterally about how places can help you out. You know, a lot of people wouldn't even think necessarily about, oh, I do have these, you know, air miles that I'm not using or points with whatever airline. And that can be a huge help to athletes because flights are pretty expensive, as it turns out, and can be a huge chunk of your budget. Or, you know, there's places like, you know, there's people who use stuff like Hotels.com and have a certain number of free nights that they can book you hotels with for free for them. 
So kind of thinking about all of the different ways that people can help you without necessarily writing you a check. And then, of course, there is the actually writing you a check. And this is where doing that budget that we talked about a few minutes ago can be really helpful because, you know, it's really exciting when someone is willing to give you, you know, say like $300 or something like that. But when you've actually written out your budget of what your season looks like, a lot of the time you realize very quickly, (laughs) oh, $300 got me through the first half of a race weekend. Uh Uh-oh. But you've now committed to the sponsor as like your title sponsor for the season for this thing that, yeah, barely made it through your first race weekend. And then there are some sponsors that will, you know, set up salary structures or bonus structures. Uh, That tends to be a little bit more when you've made it. And in cycling and in running, a lot of the time you're going to expect, honestly, expect to make very little and then have a much larger bonus structure attached to it. That's how a lot of teams are going these days, which is, you know, adds a whole nother level of stress. Nobody said this was easy. (laughs) Yeah. And then not all bonus structures are based on results. So some of my contracts do have results based bonuses built in, but some of them also have content based bonuses built in. So like Mm -hmm. if you get, if you get an article written about you in a magazine, or if you publish an article, a future story in a magazine, or if you co-produce a video or lots of different ways and, and what the, the line of thought along this line is these content pieces are bringing the brand value. It's using your image as the athlete or as the influencer, but these are bringing the brand value because it's bringing a personal story to the brand, like about the brand that the brand is part of. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, honestly, brands can't really even put a price on that because let's be honest, if you're looking through a magazine, you basically glance over the ads. Like you very rarely really take them in. But if you're reading an article about a racer or an athlete and, you know, they happen to be riding this bike or they're talking about how much they love this bike or, you know, how this suspension really changed the riding, that's so much more valuable than any ad honestly, it's more valuable than pretty much any race result barring like an Olympic medal at this point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. So when should people start actually asking for money? Because I think that that's a difficult conversation to have of, say, you're an amateur racer, and you've been getting like free stuff, or you've been getting a discount, you know, to buy your stuff. And you're you want to move to the next level, you've won some races, maybe you have 5,000 followers on Instagram and you're starting to get into the media a little bit. And now you're thinking, well, I think I'm worth a little bit more. How do I ask for money and who do I ask and and what do I say? Yeah. I mean, that's a really, really hard question. And I mean, (laughs) frankly, it's it's a really hard topic, right? It is a hard topic. Money as an adult is still this really taboo subject. And I mean, it can be really scary to broach it because you're afraid if they say no to that, are they saying no to everything else? So I think that the first thing to do is really have your ask figured out. Like, what is it that you want from them? Because honestly, most companies, if you go to them and you say, like, I want to talk about money, they're going to say, okay, what about it? And you can't just say, well, I, I want some. Like you need to have, Yeah. what do you actually want? What is that budget? Have that sheet of here's what it's going to cost me to have this season. Here's, you know, I've cost out the plane tickets. I've cost out the hotel rooms, the race entry fees. This is what my groceries look like for the week. You know, really have it dialed in what you need and show up with that. And 
come to the table with it and say, you know, you want to talk about it and you're willing to negotiate. And I mean, the worst thing that they can do is say no. And, you know, you're probably just going to be back to product and they'll say they don't have it this year. And then the other thing is, if you're going to ask for money, you also have to ask what they need from you in order to justify you becoming a line item, you know, that's more than just product. So asking what it is that they would find value in, you know, is it that you're posting to your 5,000 followers? Is it that you're doing a video for your 5,000 followers? Is it that you're hosting an event? Is it that you're, you know, going to start writing a small blog for, you know, one of the many cycling publications out there, you know, figure out what's going to help them and what's going to make them actually find value in you. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So it's your value proposition. And I think that in your book, you talk about like how to write a proper email and what to put on a resume. And I think that when you're going to ask for something, you should show up with a proposal to begin with. And you mentioned in your book, like make sure that it's not hard to read and the file isn't massive and that it's actually attached to the email. So like the value proposition would be all those things that you just mentioned, the things that the person is doing, including racing, but what else are they doing to bring value to that brand? How have they quantified that? So the beginning part is when you're first asking for money, and this is something I've had to learn over the last six years is like, you have to like pick a number and start there. And then over time, mm-hmm. you, you learn what your value is in the marketplace. And it's hard because you have to ask for more. You have to learn how to negotiate. A lot of people are going to tell you no. You're going to hear no a thousand times to every one time you hear yes. And dealing with that rejection is really hard because sometimes you feel like you personally are being rejected. But like you mm-hmm. said, like you said, Molly, like sometimes they just don't have the budget or sometimes they just don't see the value or sometimes it's just not the right fit for whatever that brand sees valuable. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's being a pro athlete is really hard, right? Not only do you risk losing a race, you're dealing with this rejection from sponsors and even ones that you've had a great relationship with, even when things are going well, they might, you know, the companies might change. I mean, honestly, in cycling, I can name you know, probably a dozen companies that have gone out of business in the last 10 years. And, you know, as they went out of business, all of their sponsored athletes, you know, got booted off the teams and it's through no fault of their own. What, Like, it's just, that's the way the industry works. It's super volatile. And I mean, honestly, like race results, same thing, you know, you can be having a great year and then all of a sudden it tanks and, you know, what are you going to do after that? So yeah, just be aware that you're getting into a very volatile up and down atmosphere that can be really scary. But also, yeah, I cannot emphasize enough having worked as a team manager who got a lot of emails from racers who were wondering how to be part of that team. Dear God, please, please, please spell check, grammar check, just just read the email a second time would be really helpful. Get the person's name right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, get the brand right would be really nice. Make sure you didn't just copy and paste from the last <laughs> form email you were sending. Don't do that in general. Uh, yeah, make sure you check which attachments you've attached. I'm a big stickler for if you're going to attach a race resume or you're going to attach a photo title, like make sure it's actually named correctly. Like your name. Um, Yeah, your name, racer resume, or, you know, photo, or like, yeah, I would say like Hereford Nationals 2017 or whatever your name in the race. I'm not going to lie. I've actually gotten wildly inappropriate photos accidentally attached (laughs) to emails before. (laughs) 
<laughs> so yeah. things you don't want to do. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah. Unpleasant experience. Not awesome for the person who sent it once they realize what they've done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It just, it costs nothing to reread your emails before you send them. So please, please do that. I have another suggestion to add to that as well. So like we're talking about how to stand out essentially whenever you are trying to get in touch via email. Another thing that I found useful is look up the person that you're emailing, like go online, like Google them, go on their social media, like follow them, see what they're interested in and look for common ground so that you can build a relationship or or you'd be like, Hey, like I noticed you like IPA. I like IPA too. This is my favorite one. Or like bring them your favorite IPA the next time you see them. So like, be thoughtful. That way they know that you're actually paying attention and you're not just sending out a thousand emails hoping that somebody just says yes and that they are unique to you. Oh my gosh, yes. And the other thing one of the sponsorship coordinators I talked to you said is just make sure you're following the brand itself. Um, (laughs) It's shocking how many people aren't doing that that are just you know, sending these blanket emails to just hundreds of teams, like you're going to have so much more luck if you send very tailored, very specific emails to five places that you've followed, that you love, that you've carefully thought through than you will if you just send a hundred copy and pasted emails. Yeah, I think that another thing that's helpful is whenever you're going through this process of trying to become sponsored is your outlook on it. A lot of things that we've said is that it's hard, it's volatile, like you might be broke for a long time. And those can all sound really negative. The positive thing is that even if it doesn't turn out the way you want it to, and and it might, like you might, it might be awesome. But even if it doesn't, it's an incredible learning opportunity for you to learn about business, for you to learn about speaking what your value is. And it takes courage to actually stand in front of somebody and tell them that you're worth it. Mm -hmm. learning how to negotiate, learning how to take your own photos, like that we talked about in the beginning, learning communication skills for writing emails, like those are all really valuable things. So even if you don't get the money or get the bike sponsor, long term in your life, big picture thinking, that is a skill that if you continue to work on that, it will pay off one way or another. Oh, yes, exactly. And I think you know, the other thing that we didn't really touch on is sort of like this uh, in-race mentality. And I have a big chunk of the book that I talk about that is this grace under pressure, right? Like you're not always going to have a great race. And in the same way in life, you're not always going to have like a great day at work, but you can't just, you can't throw your laptop in the office. So you also can't throw your bike at the end of a race, you know, just being, being the kind of person who can have a really rough day and then still be disappointed, be willing to express that emotion, but express it in a way that is actually like sympathetic and, just comes off so much better than if you're just shouting at reporters to get out of your way as you storm off to the team (laughs) tent and refuse to take interviews. And that goes for, you know, any level of racer. It doesn't matter if you're in the beginner category or the top of the pro ranks, like be a gracious racer, no matter how your race goes. And again, like that's just setting you up to be a much more cool, collected, competent adult human being. And yes, there are still some like 50 year olds that need to learn this. This is not just for like the junior racers out there. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I can say that I've been racing 16 years and me in my earlier days, not as eloquent and and graceful as I am now, because I've had to learn that over time and sometimes the hard way. So yeah, you'll learn too. And you'll make like everyone listening, like you will make mistakes. 
You will send an email and call somebody the wrong name. You will forget to attach or attach some like forgive yourself when you make those mistakes, but just learn from those mistakes. Oh, definitely. I still regularly send emails without the attachments and yeah. stuff. <laughs> Although pro tip in Gmail, you actually have like five seconds, I think it is after you hit send where you can hit undo and cancel. Oh. You can go back and edit. Yeah. Lesser another, known fact. <laughs> another thing is like we're talking about contacting people, but how do we find who to contact? Because like, say someone's like, oh, I want to ride for whatever brand or I want to apply to whatever team. How do you do that? Yeah, great question. And I think this is where a lot of people kind of actually go wrong because they do a couple different things. They email the generic or like just hit like the generic company contact form. Just that's their first line of defense or first line of offense, whatever. It's their first thing they do is just like info at xycompany.com, which just goes to like one big general folder. This is fine if there's no other information that you can possibly find online provided, but that should kind of be your like last resort because otherwise you're probably going to get a really annoyed sponsorship person and be like, oh, good. They didn't bother trying to figure out who I was. Delete. Flip side of that, though, do not direct message these poor people on Facebook or on <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> It is the most irritating thing in the entire universe. You can email them. That's totally fine. But their personal Facebook page, off limits. Don't do that. It's very rude. I say that as, again, someone who gets a lot of emails and or gets a lot of emails and gets a lot of messages. I'm totally fine with emails. I'm happy to respond and have conversations with people. But my email is really easy to find. So I really don't love when my Facebook, like my personal Facebook page starts getting dinged with a bunch of how do I get on a team emails. That's really frustrating or messages. Sorry, I keep messing up my emails and messaging. So best way to find emails. A, Google is your best friend. B, LinkedIn exists. Try all of these things. Search the website. Make sure that you've searched the company's website exhaustively. Like you've gone to every page on there and you have looked because sometimes these things are hidden deep in the corner, you know, deep in the recesses of like, five pages into the FAQ section, but they're there. So do yourself a favor, take a second look if you didn't find it the first time. You can search, like I said, the company is on LinkedIn, sometimes on the company's Instagram or Twitter, Facebook, they'd have some kind of contact. Um, just really make sure you've done your homework trying to find the email and always start the, if you're going to send the info at email, just start with, I'm really sorry if you do have this written somewhere. I looked and I couldn't find who your sponsorship person was. So I'm hoping you can send this to the right person. That way they at least realize that you did spend some time on it. Yeah, I think one other place that, I mean, this isn't always going to work, but Bicycle Retailer is a publication that is, it's really geared towards bike shops and, and bike industry. But I actually like I used to work in the industry, so that's how I know about this. But and I'm on their email newsletter. I get their magazine in the mail because oftentimes when someone takes a new job at a bike industry company, there's an article written about it. So you can search Google, search bicycle retailer brand marketing person if you don't know you know, who to look for. And sometimes you'll get those articles pop up and, and look at the date of the article, because if it was published in like 2012, they're probably not there anymore. But like try and search that way. But I think LinkedIn is probably the best way to go. Or you can ask a friend. And th this is a can be something that's a little bit dicey in some cases because not all sponsorship people want to be found in these brands. They don't want everybody and their mother emailing them. So their email might be hard to find. 
So they might ask somebody, if you're close friends with someone, say, hey, and you know they're sponsored by the same brand. I'd love to get in touch with this person. It's okay if you don't want to connect me or if you can't connect me or if you're uncomfortable, but this is why I want to connect with this person and here's the value I can bring. Because when you're asking somebody to make an intro for you, you're asking them to put their reputation on the line as well with that relationship. Yes, I think that's, I'm so glad you said that. Uh, The bicycle retailer one is awesome. And yeah, I mean, definitely like there's so many, the cycling industry especially is so small and everyone is so connected that you can almost always find like a six degrees of separation, but (laughs) never expect someone to be willing to share that stuff. Because yeah, I mean, it's people in those positions tend to get asked a lot fairly often. So, you know, ask, but be willing to hear a no from that and don't take it personally. And the last thing I want to ask, and I mean, people should definitely buy this book because, I mean, like I said, it's over 100 pages. It has very detailed information about everything that we've talked about and more, like way more than we've talked about. So you work as a journalist as well, and you mentioned journalist relationships. How can somebody build relationships with journalists at publications and get the journalists to include them, especially if they're not like, quote, winning races? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to do is honestly find and follow the ones that you like, like start reading the publications would be the the probably first (laughs) step, you know, follow the publications, read the articles that they're coming out with. So like for me, for example, if you, you know, you read that I write a lot about nutrition, you know, that tends to be a lot of what I do is nutrition roundups, you know, latest nutrition trends, all that kind of stuff. So you see that about me. Okay. So you're going to follow me on say Twitter. And then next time I do a roundup, maybe that's when you message me and say, or, you know, just retweet the article and say, I really love this article. Here's, you know, a link to these cookies that I made that were kind of similar to the ones that she mentioned in here or email me and say, you know, really enjoyed this recipe roundup. I have this great slow cooker thing that I've been doing. It's awesome. If you're ever interested, you know, really figure out what the reporters are looking for and figure out a way that you can answer that. A lot of the time we're kind of looking for athletes to feature, especially in that kind of roundup situation. And, you know, it's not always that we're looking for super pros. A lot of the time I'm looking for really passionate cyclists or really passionate outdoors people who just happen to really, you know, love the sport. And in this particular case, really love food and cooking, but you know, there's tons of other, options out there as far as, you know, areas of interest, but yeah, figure out how to kind of slide in and offer something of value. Um, Oh, and when someone does actually then respond and say, yeah, it'd be great to have a recipe. Please don't respond with, okay, I'll get it to you in a week. Just respond with the recipe would be awesome. The amount of times I've heard, I'll get it back to you in a week. And then I have to chase someone. You only get one chase is the general rule of thumb before you're off the reporter's list. But once you make it on to the, oh, this person's good for a quote or a recipe or whatever it is, they're going to hit you up more often. So be accessible. Yeah. And another thing I've seen you do and I've seen other journalists do is they'll actually post on their Twitter or yeah, typically on Twitter is where the writers are living. I find they'll Mm -hmm. say like you said something like, like, what's a weird thing about running? The, what, what was it that it was? I saw you posted a few times. Oh, yeah. It was like the weirdest piece of running advice you ever got. Yeah. So like and, writers will put that out there, like wanting you to chip in. And so if you're following them, then you'll get to do that. 
Yeah. And I mean, I can say like most of those articles, I'm actually not even looking for a pro to answer that question. I'm actually looking for more of like the recreational person or the amateur person. So yeah, if you if you want to kind of catch reporters' eyes, you're exactly right. Twitter is 100% the spot for that. Yeah. And I think, again, we've already said this a few times, but I just know that people tend to think, well, I'm not a pro or I'm not a fast pro or like, I don't know anything like the whole imposter syndrome thing, whether it comes to reaching out to a journalist or whether it comes to posting pictures online or, you know, you are worth it. If you're listening, you're worth it. And it takes time to build up a reputation, but you have to start somewhere. And if you can just start with just saying, I'm trying to bring value and I don't have to be the best, the number one in order to do that. And there's still going to be a lot of things that I can do. That's a really good place, a really good attitude to start with instead of the attitude of, well, I'm not good enough or I'm not smart enough or I'm not fast enough because you'll never get there if you start with that attitude. You need to like, and this is my, my, my pep talk, which is kind of funny, but yeah, like it takes courage. This is advice my husband gives me and I wrote it down and I have it in a visible place because I go through this. Have the courage to believe that you're worth it because it is hard. And once mm-hmm. you can start doing that, it's like a muscle. Oh, yes, I, I could not have said that better. My my succinct version is be like, fake it till you make it. <laughs> but I like yours much better, much more inspirational. And that goes for like anything, like you're a journalist and like, I, I'm not a journalist like you, but I've done a lot of like published, you know, feature articles and things like that. And you have to start somewhere with that too. And like, believe that you're a good enough writer where you can be published and you have to like start trying and putting it out there. And rejection is the path. Like you will get rejected. And if you're not getting rejected, you're probably not even putting yourself out there. Yes, exactly. I've actually tried to set it as like my goal for 2020 to get more rejections. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, where's the best place for people to find you? And can people contact you if they have any questions about your book? Yes, absolutely. I would love that. I've actually had a couple of readers end up emailing me their race resumes to look over and I've been able to give them some tips on that. And that's actually really fun for me. So definitely feel free to hit me up. You can find the book on athletesponsorshipguide.com or on theoutdooredit.com. That's sort of my main site. And you can email me or my contact information is all on there. You can find me at Molly J. Herford on pretty much everything. I'm super easy to find on the internet. So you can Google my email address and get it. (laughs) So yeah, definitely get in touch if you have any questions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show to talk about this stuff. It's something I'm passionate about as well. And hopefully people found value and can move forward and get some awesome sponsorships. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And we're going to have to have you back on our podcast to talk all about mountain bike stage racing soon, too. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right, guys. We forgot to mention, and I'll mention this in the intro, Molly is the consummate athlete's co-host. But a lot of times, only you conduct the interviews, I noticed. It's true, yeah. that's. I think it's the reporter in me. I just kind of accidentally <laughs> end up booking them and doing them. And poor Peter's just like, hey, weren't you going to tell me about that? Um, so he's Yeah, he's, he's an excellent co-host, though, when he does get on the interviews. Cool. Thanks, Molly. Thank you so much. Hope you guys got a lot out of that podcast episode. Make sure you pick up the book at athletesponsorshipguide.com and check out more of Molly Herford's awesome projects. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure that you hit the subscribe button so that you will continue to get notifications of all of our awesome guests that come out every single week. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. Wishing you all the best. And we will see you right back here in just a few days.